Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Hey, Look, I'm here I... too. Uh, I'm here as I'm, well. I'm also We're here. helping, George. And we don't put on voices when we read ads. Look, we know you want to get to the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. Not what more do you people want from us? If Rihanna Giddens' aria code was every week, we'd be screwed. They hired a woman, ladies. It's Come on. So, they, you got to start getting into so this. It's so good. Aria code. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Check like, it out. Really Five bucks buys an ad on social media. 10 bucks covers our website for a month and 20 bucks makes 100 lapel pins. Ooh. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on pomegranate molasses and fancy tahini. That's true. That's not so a joke. The, the original ad had something about hair products and I'm almost bald so I don't understand what you're trying to go. <laughs> I mean <laughs> if we're going to talk about hair products in this room I'm probably the one that consumes the most of everyone. So yeah so 10 bucks buys my hair products for a week guys. You can do it. Don't think you can give? Oh yes you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts. Share our Facebook Facebook posts or retweet us. Most so of all, the retweeting is actually very environmentally sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reduce your carbon footprint. Retweet. Exactly. Just use Especially if you use real birds. Over and over again. Mm -hmm. yeah. And most of all, keep listening to America's talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside Studio on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by George Cedarquist and Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with Pulitzer Prize-winning librettist Royce Vavrick, creator of such works as Breaking the Waves, Dog Days, and JFK, plus... How should we be selling opera for newbies? NPR's got opinions, and we do too. And then in the two-minute drill, we talk about everyone's favorite convenience store, 7-Eleven. What does that have to do with opera? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. And, of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And now, without further ado, Oliver, how was that Super Bowl? <laughs> You know what? I was watching the Australian Open final. I was really busy. <laughs> I was really busy on Sunday morning, so I taped the Australian Open final so I could watch it while people were watching the Super Bowl, so it felt like my own personal Super Bowl. But I actually was, I managed to stop it in enough time to watch two Latinas shake their booties on national TV, and I loved it so much. I really loved the halftime show. I thought it was so much Latina power, and I love seeing all the angry responses from uh, white people who don't like brown bodies. Ah, yes, yes, very good. Drink those white tears, Oliver. And now, <laughs> and George Cedarquist, did you watch the Super Bowl? I did watch the Super Bowl. I absolutely loved watching star quarterback Patrick Mahomes lead our Chicago Bears to victory in Super Bowl 54. Wait a second. No, never mind. We were the ones who didn't actually draft him two years ago completely moronically. And so the Bears fans, we were sitting around at home twiddling our thumbs. A tragic, tragic mistake. All right, it's time to talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. 
Royce Vavrek is the hipster Hoffmannstahl, librettist of such operas as Song from the Uproar, JFK, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Angel's Bone. Within the past two weeks alone, Royce Vavrek's works have been seen at Oberlin, Pasadena Opera, and National Sawdust. Later this month, his newest work, a collaboration with composer Luna Pearl Wolf, opens at Tapestry Opera in Toronto. Now he's reached the peak of his career in a live interview with Opera Box Score. Royce, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Royce Vavrick, this is Oliver Camacho. I'm I'm beyond thrilled that you are talking to us. I mean, we have said your name so many times over our almost five years of being on the air. <laughs> Every time a new opera comes up, your name is attached to it. I was like, who is this guy that's always writing operas? What is he? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Oliver Royce. It's George. Let's get to the important stuff. Uh, did you watch the Super Bowl last night? <laughs> oh, I so wish. I could tell you that I did, but I, I honestly couldn't even tell you who won. So, and so, what were you uh, doing, yeah. my man? What were you doing when you were not watching the Super Bowl? I was watching highlights from the BAFTA Awards. Nice, oh. nice, more of a, very good. Uh, movie sort of derby guy than I am a sports derby guy. Uh, so, yeah, ba- BAFTA honored the Parasite cast, but not any individual Parasite actors, correct? Um, they don't have a, an ensemble award. Oh, okay. so I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of SAG. Yeah. I'm thinking of SAG. Oh, one that's right. That's right. Screenplay and yeah. one for being in their pop international film. Mm. Um, so it was recognized, but uh, yeah, in 1917 seems to be so we winning everything. So it seems to be straight to the Oscars from here. Well, let's talk a little bit of opera. Here's our first two part question. Since your name has become synonymous with the flourishing of contemporary opera in North America, can you point to a libretto that you hold up? as a benchmark for setting the English language, and part two, can you give us a little insight into how you think about choosing words in the English language that are meant to be sung? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, the number one libretto that just keeps um, coming back into my imagination is that of Minotti or Vanessa. I no way. It's Minotti. Yeah. Okay. It's a good libretto. libretto. Okay. I love that score. Okay. Yeah. It's, I think it's super strong. I love... I, I, I was, was one of my first... Uh, engagements with the opera. I was uh, I was sitting in on rehearsals for New York City Opera's production probably uh, over a decade ago, and I I was a member of the American Lyric Theater Composer Librettist Development Program, and they placed me and one of my colleagues there. And I remember hearing it for the first time and not really being able to untangle it whatsoever, and uh, and then growing to just absolutely adore everything about hmm. that opera. I just. I guess I need to go back to that. I've I've never paid attention to the libretto. It's it's such a good libretto. It it really, really is. Must Uh, the winter come so soon? Of course, I know that. That's a soprano national anthem. (laughs) So as as you are thinking about these ideas for your own work and thinking about words that are meant to be sung, what are your, you know, goals? I mean, does it need to be singable? Does it need to be memorable? I think I've read somewhere that you're not that concerned about singability. Well, I do work in a medium that does sing words. So, yeah, words need to be sung, but I haven't met a word that couldn't be sung mm-hmm. um, being set in a very particular way. And I think the English language is so delicious. And if you really, if you're, if you're going to just use words that will sound beautiful on long open vowels, uh, with long open vowels, then you're really limiting the, the scope and, and the beauty of the English language. So, yeah, there are times when a composer will want that. They'll want things to open up and just be this thrilling moment. And, yeah, you need to have a word that accommodates that. But there are so many moments where um, 
crunchy words or uh, just idiosyncratic words really are, are the much better option. So I think that you have to be open to using the whole, the whole palette of the English language on your canvas. Royce, it's George. When you're talking to your contemporaries who are also librettists, working in languages other than English, do you find that they have struggles that we don't face in our language in opera as librettists or as composers or singers? I think that all different libretti have their own intrinsic challenges. And, and my career um, internationally is only just now starting to, to heat up. So I don't have tons and tons of colleagues that, that write in, in foreign languages. So um, I, I do have lots of colleagues who write in the English language, um, but every opera is its own beast. You just sort of have to roll with it. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't really know how to answer that. It's, it's just to say that uh, I think that it's hard. It's hard to, to create a piece of drama that has poetry and that, uh, that really ignites the composer's imagination. So every opera is its own unique challenge from the, from the get-go. One of those operas, of course, is Breaking the Waves. In the coming seasons, Breaking the Waves is set to be performed at BAM. Houston Grand Opera, L.A. Opera. At what point in your collaboration with composer Missy Mazzoli did you two and um, James Dara as well, did you figure out that like this was likely going to become a benchmark work specifically in your career? Well, it was sort of a, a benchmark cinematic experience in my <laughs> early life, and I've been carrying it with me since I was 14, I believe. And you naughty I, little boy. I knew... <laughs> I knew that it was something that I had to engage with in a very, very dynamic way. So um, I, I think I knew that when Missy had this composer in residence position at Opera Philadelphia, um, I, and we had the opportunity to pitch a project, I, it took a little while to convince her, but I knew that the two of us could come together to tell that story in a really, really special way. And it's it's one of the most important and uh, amazing things, journeys that I've been on, and uh, it just seems to be the gift that keeps on giving in many ways uh, with all these productions. We actually go to Adelaide in a, in a few weeks, uh, I believe in, in mid-March, uh, and that will begin this, this little mini-tour. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it seems to be blowing up in, in the most beautiful way. Oliver is going to be next, I think, but let me just follow up on that quickly, if I may, Royce. So the, mm -hmm. the bulk of your work has been what I would call like, you know, original pieces, right? You've created those words from scratch. Uh, that's part of the process with any piece. But Breaking the Waves, of course, adapted from the Lars von Trier film. Uh, wh what's your take on works that are adapted from other media versus that are completely original, right? Like, this is a divide in film and in television. How is that working in the opera world? Well, I, I will say that Breaking the Waves, I don't know that I've ever worked harder on a libretto than I did hmm. Breaking the Waves. So this, it's not necessarily that, uh, that doing an adaptation is easier, but it does sort of remove a, a step in the process, which is coming up with a story that's sort of watertight. And uh, there's so many moving parts in opera that it, sometimes it's very helpful to have the foundation or the spine that a story or uh, a previously existing source will offer. Um, I think if you look at my, the list of my libretti, there's probably equal amounts of original work or, uh, versus adaptation or probably even a little bit more adaptation than there is uh, original stuff. 
Um, I am a cinema boy. I, I cinema was my portal <laughs> to the world. Because you're not I, watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> watch the Baptist instead. <laughs> well, when I was, yeah, I grew up on a farm in northern Alberta, Canada, and so um, VHS tapes at the local video rental store, which wasn't a blockbuster initially, but then uh, blockbusters certainly took over my town. Um, but then we, yeah, just I, I found that there were so many ideas, so many really, really provocative, cool ideas. And Breaking the Waves was one of them that I saw on a VHS tape on a black and white TV, I think, at a friend's house. So hmm. it was not the, and a very small TV at that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just, you, uh, I think that that really has shaped the way that I think about art and think about opera and think about everything, um, more so than anything else, is my sort of like the, the huge diet of, of international and American independent cinema of the late 90s and early 2000s. In our introduction, um, Weston listed a couple of things that have been happening over the past couple of weeks. The premiere of Wild Beasts of the Bungalow at uh, Oberlin, uh, Proving Up at Pasadena Opera, this project called Untitled at National Sawdust, and of course, all these remountings of um, Breaking the Waves. I have so many questions about, one, where, how do you decide where to go? Like, you know, is it important for you to show up? at a new production of Breaking the Waves, like to meet the audience in Adelaide, like you said, or to go to Oberlin to work with students? Or uh, are you, you know, going someplace where Missy Mazzoli is going to be or Ricky or Ian Gordon's going to be because you guys are constantly seeming to collaborate and you need to just have time together for your back and forth collaborations? Like, wh- how do you decide what to do with your time? What's your focus? I know it was a long question. <laughs> to be the new stuff, the stuff that needs you there. Because mm-hmm. when, when, a, when a show hasn't settled, you are constantly making little adjustments. You're changing ifs and thats here and there. Uh, and sometimes it requires even greater surgery. Um, I haven't necessarily been in one of those situations yet. But I, I do think that you sort of have to be on call for the piece that, that really needs your attention at that moment. But that being said, we like to get to absolutely everything. There's nothing that I don't want to go to. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, so I, I don't think that I'm going to get to Australia, and I don't think that Missy's going to get down there either, but we will be with them in spirit. I didn't get to California for the new production of Proving Up, but I did spend 10 days in Oberlin uh, working with the, the students there on The Wild Beast of the Bungalow with Rachel J. Peters and Christopher Mirto, the director. Um, and I um, I was at the workshop in uh, at National Sawdust for Untitled, inspired by Film Stills. So I, I sat in for the first day of that and then ran off to Toronto to join rehearsals for Jacqueline. Uh, so, yeah, it's just you, you sort of, I, I try to do it all. <laughs> I, I wish I, I well, could. Well, when you were at Obelay, I mean, at the same time, but. I feel like a lot of our audience is closer to the age of people that are getting out of Oberlin. What type of experience <laughs> uh, are those kids getting seeing a librettist and a composer? Like, I don't even, if I. I only, when I was in college, I only worked on operas of dead people. So I have no idea what a librettist would even contribute and how intimidating that might be for, you know, young singers to like have the librettist right there if they mess up their words, which is the first thing to be forgotten. Are the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you mess up words, you just laugh and, and move on and, and correct it for the next run. Uh, and so it, I think it was so, it was, the room was just such a, a big room of, it was full of generosity and excitement. These students are just, they're young geniuses. They were so funny. Um, and, and Wild Beast of the Bungalow is this sort of outrageous, weird comedy, and Christopher Mirto decided the world needed to be pink, and so it just looked like this massive explosion of pink, and so it just, and there was such joy 
And I, I don't know that they certainly could have been intimidated, but I hope we created a room where they were um, open to be collaborators. And I, re- I felt that. I, I'm so enamored by the talents of these young, these young students who are 18, 19, 20 for the most part, mm-hmm. just insane what they brought to the table. We saw, Weston and I saw uh, Dog Days here at Northwestern University. and Loved it. We, I mean, <laughs> I'm not a new opera person. I'm becoming more and more. But uh, I was just really blown away at how intense these uh, these performances were and how vulnerable these kids were willing to make themselves uh, on the stage. You know, it was very, very raw. And uh, obviously they had the, the material to go in that direction. But, um, I, yeah, I was really shocked. I, can you talk a little bit about working with David T. Little? Because he is a friend of the show and we love to name drop here. So. <laughs> we do. <laughs> David T. Little is he's, he's just he's one of the best. He's absolutely extraordinary. Um, like, really, I, I get—I I have the best job in the world. I get to collaborate with the David T. Little, the Missy Mazzoli, the Duyans, the Ricky Ian Gordon, the Daniel Bjarnason. Oh, Michael thank you for all those names. They feel so good. <laughs> yeah, Paula Prestini's. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm, I'm so unbelievably lucky. Uh, and so with David, Dog Days really was the, the start of our careers. It, we premiered it in 2012 with a cast that included... Lauren Warsham, for goodness sakes, who's just one of my absolute favorite people in the entire world. And what she did in Dog Days and how she informed that piece, uh, it just it dumbfounds me to this day. Um, and Marnie Breckenridge, who I'm collaborating with on, on Jacqueline's, it was our first relationship together. And getting to work with uh, the genius that is Robert Woodruff, truly one of the great American directors of all time, was just like, it, it was such a, an amazing learning experience. And to get to learn while making a piece of art that just feels so good and so soulful and, and so meaningful was there's nothing better than that. I, there was this one day that, uh, um, that uh, I went in a class at Yale with Robert. He brought me in to talk to this small group of students, and he said that um, you, you don't always – it wasn't for him that he needed to make pieces that were huge statements these days. He wanted to work with the people that he loved. And when you get to tell, make a big statement or when the piece is great, that's wonderful. But it's more important that you collaborate with those that you truly love. And I can say without question that I absolutely love the people that I work with. They are so kind and open and just master collaborators. Speaking of uh, collaborations, I didn't want to uh, uh, leave the interview without uh, asking you a little bit about your collaboration with uh, Du Yun. Uh, uh, for Angel's Bone, uh, and you both got the Pulitzer Prize for that. Um, how do you... Uh, I, I imagine it's so interesting being a librettist in a world where, you know, in some ways, you know, opera is difficult for everyone who, who, who goes for it. You know, there's the, but, but there's more of a path, right? If, you're a, if you want to sing, there's a path for you that you can, you can go to school for it. If you want to conduct, you can go that direction. If you want to compose, you've got another direction. Um, but being a librettist and to achieve such sort of a, a lofty uh, accolade as the Pulitzer Prize, um, there's less of a direction, uh, I think, baked in. Um, you don't, you don't like, I'm going to go to librettist school. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I was wondering how you got into being th- this level of uh, collaborator with all these big names, um, with all of these important uh, new works. H- how did you go from being um, some uh, the kid watching uh, the, the black and white TV in Canada <laughs> to being uh, uh, the royalty of the uh, opera libretto world? 
Well, you were very way too kind. My goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly don't feel like royalty, but um, I, I am, again, so blessed to be working with really, really cool, great people. Um, yeah, you know, it, it started off with American Lyric Theater. I was part of the first cohort, and Larry Edelson, who is the leader of that of that company, um, he he found me in an open submission and gave me this opportunity to work with uh, with composers and to be in a room with other librettists and to work with great dramaturgs like Corey Ellison, uh, to learn from composers like Mark Adamo, uh, and I, it, yeah, it, it was one of those things that just sort of set my career as a librettist on on track. Uh, it was at the sort of final concert that we did. Uh, where David came. He was friends with Jeff Myers, who was uh, one of my collaborators that night, and he was really moved by this piece that we wrote. And uh, he asked me if I would write, uh, based on that, he asked if I would write the the first excerpt, the first 20 minutes from Dog Days for Carnegie Hall. And at Carnegie Hall, Missy Mazzoli showed up because she wanted to support many of her friends who were on that same concert, including David. Uh, And uh, she gave me a flyer for the first uh, presentation that she had of Song from the Uproar. And I went to see that first 30-minute snapshot, and then after that, she asked me to complete it. And then it was really the New York City Opera Vox in, I believe, 2010, where it was Duyun, Missy, David, Julian Wachner, uh, and uh, a whole host of singers and other composers. But those, like, I, I still work with all of those people. And it was Beth Morrison who came on as producer either that year or the year after, and uh, and so it was just this little community that stemmed out of, of City Opera right before um, it, it went away. Mm. And uh, and it, yeah, we we hold that um, as this very important moment in the in just the, the history of our of our family, of our artistic family. And it really, really, really does does feel like that. And Paula was in that box cohort as well. Um, so it's just like this extremely tight knit group of people who are making work and who support each other wholeheartedly. And uh, it's just, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's our, our little team. So we only have a few minutes left, but I want to jump back to um, collaborating with Marnie Breckenridge, who was uh, in the original cast for Dog Days as the mother, correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, so now you're working with her again. Um, did you know that this project here at Tapestry Opera was going to be with her? Is that sort of why you signed on? Or can you tell us just more about how this whole thing came about? Well, it's, kind of a dream team <laughs> with Marnie and Matt Heimovitz and Luna Pro-Wolf, the, the gorgeous composer, oh my goodness, and Michael Mori, who is just the most imaginative, wonderful director. So it was the whole team. But um, I think that Luna actually found Marnie uh, through Dog Days. She saw a presentation that we did of Dog Days at the National Opera Center and, uh, and had worked with her on a reading of an opera, and The Pillar, I believe is what it was called, and uh, then she came to me saying that she uh, that she really wanted to write a piece about Jacqueline Dupre, and she thought Marnie would be perfect, and that Matt had a relationship with her. He took lessons from her, and uh, and had this very personal uh, sort of in point uh, with Jacqueline, and it just made it seem extremely special and uh, like something I, I couldn't say no to. And being a huge cinephile, I loved that film. Oh my God, Hillary and Jackie with. <laughs> With Rachel Griffiths and Emily Watson, and you know, maybe I'm just making my way through with the Emily Watson. <laughs> <laughs> right, we all. She's the touchstone. So. There's, there's worse you ones know, to yeah. find. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, just, I mean, a lot to me. yeah. I'm really happy. I mean, I want to go see this project. I don't know if I'll be able to make it out there, but I have to say that I want more singers to listen to 
instrumentalists. Um, I mean, instrumentalists, I think, should listen to singers as well. But I think everybody should listen to Jacqueline Prey play because there's something that's just so like, human and generous and vulnerable in her musicianship. And I'm so glad that somebody is focusing on that and bringing it to as many communities as possible. I mean, like the movie did a great job of, of drawing attention to her, but why not have an opera? Why not have a Netflix show about it? I mean, there's so many, so many things <laughs> we could do go. to celebrate. Oliver, make that big money. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there are quite a few people who don't know about her. I think that she's, um, it's not that nobody, that she's sort of evaporating, but I think that as time goes by, I think less people are aware of her genius and her very singular story. And I think that it's really important that we celebrate her and, and, and remember what she brought to the world of music at large. I think an anthology series like a, of a Daniel Barenboim's life might be a great way to go about it, you know? <laughs> no, seriously. I like, it. Yeah, that I would, would totally watch that. Fascinating. You know, yeah. did, he have, did he have any gay sex? Do we know? Probably not. <laughs> I, so. I, you got to sell, you know. So sell to sex, all of her sex sells. <laughs> sex sells. Just ask Royce. I mean, man. <laughs> Royce Maverick is the librettist of many, many, many operas, including such uh, uh, notable ones as Wait, Breaking the Waves, Dog Days, 27, JFK, Song from the Uproar, and Angel's Bone, which is the winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Music. If you are in Toronto or in that area, you can check out his new work, his newest work, a collaboration with uh, Luna Pearl Wolf. Uh, in Toronto there. Royce, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, guys. I think we can all agree that we're great at pretending to be opera experts here on Opera Box Score, but can opera appeal to the newbies as well? That's a question for us to tackle next, only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Encoda. Endorsed by Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato, Encoda is like a Spotify of scores. It's like, the, it's like the Netflix for new music. It's like the Hulu of notes. <laughs> Encoda is a beautiful app for streaming the world's largest digital library of sheet music on subscription. They got your novellos. They got your recordies. They got your Baron Rides. They got your Calmuses, though. Do you want to have Calmus at your fingertips? I don't think so. I think that's cleared up by now. Encoda has aggregated 100 catalogs from your favorite publishers. Mm. That's thousands of titles, millions of pages of music at your fingertips. Hopefully you don't get a paper cut, but you won't because it's digital. Yeah, you'll you'll get a million little paper cuts. You'll get a tablet cut instead. Practice, play, and perform off your phone, laptop, tablet, even your phablet. Wait, wait, what's a Okay, That's your uh, phone tablet. You know those really big phones that only basketball players can hold? Basically, you can play it on your smart toilet. The Encoda app makes editing and sharing sheet music stress-free and easy. Search content, browse curated playlists, and discover new music by using unique smart technology. That's actually a really good idea. Like, what if you can have music on your refrigerator, those smart refrigerators? Like, so, like, as you, like, say, and they're like trying to decide what to do. You could be practicing. Where know? is my milk? <laughs> this isn't for you, Oliver, because you don't do smart. Oh. <laughs> Wherever oh, you are, oh, utilize yeah. all of Encoda's features and keep your entire library of scores in one place. Download Encoda from your app store today for free trial. That's N-K-O-D-A. And you could also go to Encoda.com to learn more. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. 
That's what you're listening to tonight. A new article from NPR called Opera for Newbies highlights what aspects of opera can uh, can entice uh, newcomers to our esteemed art form and what some of the obstacles are that keep new audiences from jumping on board. And you better believe we've got some hot takes and reactions to that. Uh, so this article uh, came out last week and went sort of viral. I saw it around uh, various places. Uh, and it highlighted a few things uh, about what to love about opera. And a lot of that sort of stuff is sort of preaching to the choir I think on this show, it points out that you've got um, drama, you've got music, singing, costumes, lighting, uh, even dance. You've got all kinds of stagecraft. This is from the article. Um, and when everything is sort of working together, it's a, a really unique and exciting thing in a way that a lot of uh, not a lot of theater is. However, um, I think that uh, there is a bit of an, a trick with opera um, that I always worry about. And that's if something goes wrong in any of those sort of aspects. Uh, I have been to productions where I've taken a friend who is new to it, mm. and something was not firing in all cylinders, and they go home, you know, not necessarily disappointed, but like, oh, so that's opera. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where to, to really sell the art form, you have to have this basis there where someone is not going to dismiss it because something was off. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that's something that you, well, you have experienced at all. I will say that there is a first opera for every person, but it's not the same first opera for every person. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. And like I used to think that, oh, just take them to Rigoletto or take them to Carmen, and they will recognize the tunes, the story is engaging, et cetera, and they'll be happy. And... Maybe not. They may not be the case. Like somebody like you, probably if you saw Zigfried for the as your first, oh my god, this is so cool. I know I have a friend who was a dramatic baritone, uh, who his first opera was like Flying Dutchman or something like that, and it got him hooked. And so I would never take anybody to see Flying Dutchman, you know. But who am I, you know? Um, Oliver, not in a million years. No, but I actually I took one of my friends to see um, Partenope, the Handel opera, as his first opera, and he loved it because he was really Mm. into Shakespeare and he thought of the arias as being like little Shakespeare oh, soliloquies, yeah, yeah, you know? So, and he had loved, he appreciated the comedy and it was a good production. I will also say that I, I have a friend who went to see a very bad production of Il Viaggio a Rem, Rems. Um, and I won't say where, but we've talked about it here on the show before. So I'll give you a hint. <laughs> and they, they was their first opera. They knew nothing about the show they're going to see. And they got all dressed up and they thought it was gonna be like this romantic Whoops. evening in the theater and uh, they did not get what they signed up for. They didn't get the joke. And um, the atmosphere in this theater wasn't particularly glamorous. And mm. um, yeah, I also took a friend to see The Fairy Queen, which is one of my favorite shows. But it turned out that the production was really raunchy. And uh, <laughs> it was really raunchy and maybe even offensive. And he didn't understand why I thought this opera was so beautiful and why I wanted to take him to see it. You know, so it's it's you got to gamble and you got to I mean, it's it's tough. You, you do <laughs> need to gamble. And and one thing that Tom Hazenga says in the article, it, it's on our website, operaboxscore.com, is uh, don't stress out about it. There could be no worse move one would make in going to the opera for the first time than dressing up. Right. Because like (laughs) you no no, seriously, you want to be comfortable. Right. This is not that is probably 
if it's like a storefront opera, yeah, it could be a one act, eighty minutes. It could be ninety minutes. But yeah, it's, the director it's, might put you on little benches, like right in front. Is of your butt <laughs> still sore, Oliver, from that? Um, but you know, it, it's probably going to be two plus hours. So you you want to be comfortable. You know, I just, I would, I mean, look at you guys listening and gals listening. You can't see me, but like, I don't dress up. Oliver's wearing, <laughs> where's your sport coat, Oliver? Look at these shoes. He's like sort of a sport these guys, coat. He, he's, guys looking, shoes. he's looking, he's um, looking pretty good. I came, I came from the today. opera today, so I went oh, to see the dress yeah. rehearsal of Matt Butterfly Thank you. Here. Did you wear a tie? I didn't. I feel like a matinee, you don't need to wear a tie. Yeah. I, I've never worn a tie to an opera. But here's, here's the thing about dressing up. If you have orchestra level seats, if you somehow manage to get orchestra level seats, um, the people down there are sort of snotty, snooty, <laughs> and this is a problem. And you might get side eye for for looking too comfortable. Now, if you know your seats are in the upper balcony where you're not going to yeah. spend any time in the main lobby, yeah. then fine. You know, have at it. Wear your pajamas. You know. I mean, you get side eye anyway, right? Because you're not white. Well, here's this is. I'm so glad you brought that up because an article just came out literally today that we it was too late for us to add it to our show. But it's on the medium, and I know a lot of you already read it. It's about how black people are treated in classical music events. And we want to give that article its due attention. So we will push it till next week. This yeah. is I, man, I could be wearing a Bulls jersey on the main floor of Lyric Opera, and nobody would give me a second glance, I swear to you. My, my favorite uh, fellow opera goer because outfit. I, because I've, I'm white, is, is yeah. my point. Yes, Sorry, yes, yes, Also yes. because <laughs> you're like four <laughs> feet tall, so nobody knows no, you. No one can see me. Well, I blend right in. So My all-time favorite uh, opera goer outfit that I've ever seen, uh, this was back in the late 90s, early aughts, um, uh, at the Atlanta Opera, which uh, at that point in time was a fairly you know conservative opera house, people did dress up to go to it, mm-hmm. uh, even for the matinees. Um, but uh, there was a guy who I remember very vividly sat in front of me, who had uh, leather pants, mm, leather jacket, chains all over him, literally a mo a spiked mohawk that was about uh, a foot tall. Uh, to the point where I had to like lean around him to see, uh, and just like covered in piercings and 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 mm. just like you know a big old like anarchist symbol on the back, and I was mm. like that that is what we should be wearing to the opera. That should be the new dress. Code. Sounds campy. It's so good. I loved it so much. It was it was such a great look, and this is one of the things that I feel like we want to uh, bring forward whenever I'm talking to someone who's an opera newbie, uh, I'll, I'll often find that uh, they get hung up on uh, on, a, on a few things. Uh, and a lot of things are mentioned in the article as well. One is the dress code. Uh, and usually I say, don't worry about the dress code. It's not really that much of a thing anymore. Uh, even in the expensive seats, you know, I, I tend to start feel, feeling really rebellious. And I'm just like, I'm wearing what I'm wearing. Get out of here. Um, but... Uh, um, uh, but sometimes people want to dress up. That that's especially new people feel like that's part of going to the opera, and they're excited to dress up. So I'm like, that's okay, go for it. Um, but I think the big hurdle is the one that, and I've preached this before. People do not know that when you go to the opera, you will be able to understand what's going on. They don't know about super titles. They don't know that you will be getting a translation right there in front of your face, so you'll know what's going on. I think that's probably, honestly. Uh, aside from maybe ticket prices, the biggest factor that keeps new people from experimenting with opera, so to speak. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, obviously, foreign films that have super titles, including uh, Parasite, Parasite yeah. right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, these are uh, hugely successful. Nobody even blinks an eye when there is super titles or subtitles. Oh, yes, they in the do. A lot film. of people won't go see it because it's a foreign film. 
because it has uh, Super subtitles. Yeah. yeah. But is is that subtitles. racism or is that like they don't want to read the titles? It's it's is one it, of those. Is it a racial thing or is it a technical thing? I'm serious. I, I think it's both. Okay. I think people just don't understand why they should see a movie in a different language. Okay. You know. So then in that case, so this article is right on on the spot when um, Tom says, "quote We need to get rid of this American thing where we only speak one language and we only care about one language." I I do think that there's a certain uh, uh, a certain appeal. I think that can you, you you I think you can convince people that it's interesting to see a different culture that you're not a part of. It's interesting to see something that's in a different language. Um, um, I, I will say that I understand why that's intimidating to someone who doesn't regularly do that. Uh, but once again, I think the the problem uh, that we run into with a lot of these discussions, and we've had these, we've said all these points before. Um, but I think one of the one of the problems is is that. So many times when you're talking to someone, it has to be so specific to them. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like when you're when you're saying, oh, don't worry, you'll like this because I know you and you like this and this. You like Shakespeare. Therefore, mm -hmm. you'll be able to interpret this handle as Shakespeare. Uh, or I know you like um, uh, metal music. So you might like something a little bit more along the lines of uh, late German romanticism, you know, something loud, something uh, a little more bloody. If you uh, like fan Final Fantasy, if you play video games, yeah. you, or if you like Harry Potter and you like that kind of swooping string score, like you probably won't like Strauss, you know? I exactly. It's one of those things where. I I've, I never feel t uh, at this point in my in my knowledge of opera is extensive enough, uh, and my knowledge of my friends is hopefully extensive enough so that I, I would feel comfortable picking out an opera for pretty much anyone in my sort of friend circle mm -hmm. and saying, hey, c come to, come see this. I think you'll like at least some aspect of it. Uh, obviously, opera companies are in a more difficult position because they don't know your friends. Yeah. They, they they have to speak in generalities. They have to say, what does the general public, what does the average Joe uh, or Josephina, yeah. uh, you know, what do the... <laughs> I don't Joe know and Josephina, that's <laughs> basically the same commonality of names. So. J-O-E. So my, my question is, what can opera companies do to sort of uh, really mimic that personal well, touch? Let me just take another angle to that question, is that Opera, all opera companies, not just storefront opera companies here down the block, but like every opera company is just two seasons, two bad seasons away from shutting down entirely. <laughs> so That's every, you know, artistic director and music director are, they're trying to find the works that will appeal to the audience they think is their audience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and trying to put the best teams together. I mean, if you see a very bad opera, you luck. I mean, that's you lucked out. Like I, I feel like nowadays the quality is so high, and there's so much. So Wait, great you lucked out if you see a bad. No, opera, I mean you, you got you, out. It was really bad luck. Like the, the, yeah. the chance oh, was yeah, okay. Yeah, got very it. small chance. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like we talked about this. The boxing opera that um, what was that called? Champion. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about that, but once I heard that an opera like that exists, it's like, oh my god, that's a home run! Like the idea is a home run. You're you know? mixing the uh, the metaphors there, boxing <laughs> home run. It was <laughs> a knockout, you know. <laughs> there you we go. The old college yeah. show. You're very on brand. No, all but of like this, I, this, I this, ja this Jacqueline show that's gonna be happening at Tapestry Opera. It's like if you like Jacqueline Dupre, you know, if you and think that she's well, I mean, like if you're interested in Jacqueline Dupre, like you're probably gonna like this show. You're gonna learn something about right. her that you never knew, and you're gonna hear some 
you know, beautiful composer's idea of what the music of the soundtrack of her life would sound like, you know, and then you're probably going to get some references to the Elgar cello concerto or something like that. So it's like a double win, you know? Um, so just do a little bit of research, like just go onto the YouTubes and like play, <laughs> find a clip of it. Cause most likely it's not a world premiere. I mean, there are some out there, but you know, most likely it's already been staged once and you can hear something. You can hear some, uh, excerpt of the show, or you can hear a, an artist that is going to be performing, or you can hear the composer's other works. Like, there's so many ways to like just get a sample of what is out there, so you're not going to completely make a mistake. I mean, in at, choosing the, something, at you know? the end of the day, what it comes down to is is just like going to sports, right? The the whole thing of our show, right, is opera as sport, sport as opera. Everybody can go to and enjoy a baseball game, right? So what are the what's the commonality when we go see baseball or hockey or football that like could be replicated within a completely different art form that is opera, right? Like that is what my search is to try and tap into. I think it's it, it, it kind of comes down to that sort of, you know, sense of kind of camaraderie in the opera house, a sense that you you are participating in this uh, in this artistic experience, even if you're not on stage singing, you're still participating because you're there. It's that live connection it's that I think is absolutely true. I mean, look, say what you want about Wagner and his works or not. We go back and forth about the man, the compositions, <laughs> constantly on this show. But like, if you do watch one opera in the ring cycle or indeed a whole cycle like you like it or not will end up talking to other audience members you mm. will have interactions with them you will have that feeling of camaraderie of community which like god knows we are all searching for in this age here and now i'll also say that like if you are gonna go to the opera for the first time don't be scared. Ask somebody, call the opera house or call your friend who you mm. know is sort of an expert and say, look, I want to go see something that's like romantic and feels very old fashioned, you know, and they'll point you towards the Traviatas. You and can the send Boyans, us you know? a listener mailbag. Yeah. Or you can say, I want to see magic or I want to see a really cool new story. I want to hear bizarro music or I want to hear music that's like very predictable, like whatever, like find out, think about what it is you expect out of the opera and let somebody guide you to the your the, to the right first opera for you. And if you're already into opera, you uh, uh, try to make it an inclusive space. You know, try to try to encourage people to come in, help them, don't push them away. Uh, yeah, don't make fun of them for liking Anna Netrebko. Yeah, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Commoners. <laughs> say, say, do as Oliver says, not as he does. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, and, and, you know, if you are a big Hollywood director uh, listening to this, uh, maybe don't make the only instances of opera in your uh, movie be what the villain is listening to. Yeah, exactly. There's a thought, you know? Yeah. I think it's all about sort of getting rid of that, that stigma that's lingered for a bit. Uh, all right, we got to move on. How much does it take to fix the acoustics of an iconic opera house. Find out next only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Haymarket Opera Company, presenting Elizabeth DeShong in concert on Friday, February 28th. Shong, 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 shong. 
<laughs> Racist? <laughs> What's that? No, man. Okay. That's a famous hip-hop tune. Oh, really? Okay, so I wouldn't know. So I'm the racist one. Hailed by Opera News as an unstoppable presence and one of the finest new voices to be heard at the Met, Met soprano Elizabeth Deschong joins the Haymarket Opera Orchestra for an intimate evening of Bach and Tatas at the new Holtschneider Performance Center at DePaul University. It's, intimate a, be- Bach. Beautiful, it's a beautiful venue, actually. It, it's fantastic. Great place. There are many things to like about it, but not the fluorescent lighting. That was... <laughs> um, luminary keyboardist Yori Vinicor also joins the ensemble, taking a turn as soloist in a concerto by Bach. Lighting, luminary, I saw what you did there. Oh. Which Bach? Uh, probably JS, I'm going to say. Johnny C. Bass. Yeah, definitely not yeah. Uh, CPE. Oh, PDQ. 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 Yeah. PDQ. <laughs> It'd be funny if George I, I love this played. PDQ reference <laughs> here in 2020. Tickets are now available for Elizabeth DeChong in concert on Friday, February 28th with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra. For more information, go to haymarketopera.org. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland over the past week. Bass baritone Andrew Craig Brown, who recently won the Grammy for his work on Tobias Picker's Fantastic Mr. Fox, recently spoke to the Daily Herald about the recent win. Brown has since left his onstage career for auto repair and was initially surprised that a piece he'd sung in 2014 had even gotten the nomination. Randy Steen has been hired as the new director of the Norwegian Opera. She will officially assume the position on August 1st. The Sydney Opera House has one of the most iconic exteriors in the world, but it's been plagued by complaints about its interior acoustics since it opened its, its doors in the 1960s. Now they're finally, look, finally looking to fix it, but it's not going to be cheap. About $150 million to do a revamp of its main performance space. Dresden's Semper Operball finds itself once more mired in controversy for weird reasons. This time, it's because they chose to give the Order of St. George, described on the events page as a medal for, quote, those who have, like St. George, been a force for good in the world, to extremely controversial Egyptian president and former General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. At a 7-Eleven in Orlando, turned to opera on its external speakers to discourage loitering, but now it's causing complaints from its neighbors. Maybe they should hire a singing security guard instead. A woman who crashed through two checkpoints at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and managed to evade security for the better part of a day is apparently a trained operatic soprano named Hannah Romhild. She is currently in federal custody. The CSO has announced its upcoming season, as well as L.A. Opera and Houston Grand. We'll mention some highlights in just a moment. And on the disabled list, Sir Bryn Terfel has canceled pretty much every upcoming performance in the near future, including his recital here in Chicago after fracturing his ankle while working on a production of Flying Dutchman in Bilbao, Spain. When Lawrence Brownlee canceled a Houston Grand Opera matinee of Donizetti's La Favorite, the company flew in Michael Spires from New York City to sing the role to rave reviews. Exit stage left, mezzo-soprano Neda Casse has passed away at the age of 87. In addition to appearing at the Met in over 280 performances, she was known for her advocacy of legislation that supported the performing arts. Peter Serkin, a technically brilliant pianist with a tenacious commitment to contemporary music, has died at the age of 72. In the opera community, he will be remembered for his collaboration with composer Peter Lieberson and mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt. Lieberson, whom he accompanied for the 2004 recital at Ravinia Festival, recorded for the Harmonia Mundi label. 
Austrian bass baritone Franz Matsura died last month at the age of 95. He was known especially for his talent for playing villains on the operatic stage. His many accomplishments include the premiere performance of Dr. Schoen in the completed three-act version of Alban Berg's Lulu. And on this day, February 3rd, it was the birthday of Felix Mendelssohn in 1809 and the birth of author and librettist Gertrude Stein in 1874. American soprano Claire Watson was born this day in 1927, and Italian bass Simone Alaimo was born in 1956. In 1823, Rossini's Semiramide premiered on this day, as did Jean-Baptiste Lully's Prosperine in 1680. Mendelssohn also had a birthday premiere of his opera Der Onkel aus Boston on on this day in 1824. And that is your two-minute drill. The mad scene from Semiramide, sung by Simone Alaimo. Maybe <laughs> just we started at the wrong. We started we, at the wrong. Well, point. we missed out one of the other major um, sports events of the weekend, which is of course uh, Groundhog Day and and Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, he didn't see a shadow, so that means early spring. Although statistically. Um, Phil is 0 for 3 on the last three appearances and 4 on, out Phil. of his last 10. So I, I don't know whether uh, he... I, <laughs> I think the groundhog is a, is a he. Uh, I, I don't know if that can be assumed with any accuracy. <laughs> I, think, I thought you were about to say it, the, the, you think it's fake, and I'm like, no, no George, no, he's it's, real. No, it's for, it's for real. It's, it's <laughs> as real as not one, not two, but two stories about crazy people in florida it, it's been a good week for florida a, have you ever have for... you ever followed the um uh at florida man oh <laughs> on on um it's good on uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna tweet them on this it's just basically people doing stupid stuff who are from florida uh like the the check the crashing through the checkpoints at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago. yeah yeah i mean this is utterly nuts I I don't really know what to say about this other than that I hope this person gets the help that that they need. But also like mood, you know what I mean? Uh <laughs> Well, and like I know why we're talking about it on the show because she's an opera singer. Right. But I mean and and okay, insert like some crazy soprano joke here. Um but <laughs> that's fuckest of you. There, nice there, there, there does Good. seem to be, uh, I should say, uh, there seems to be some sort of uh, mental disability or, or impairment going on here. And so I, I do hope she receives uh, proper treatment uh, for that. And um, then so the thing on the 7-Eleven, so that was about getting rid of people loitering? like Which, which you know, as someone who is currently running an opera podcast, I'm slightly offended that you would use the opera music to drive people. <laughs> People away from your establishment. It's not the first time that they've used that yeah. youth classic music. It's yeah, a classic this, this move. Jo- it's a classic yeah. move. Like if they were playing like, I don't know, White Noise or like prog rock or something, a- anything in a loud volume is going to like, you know. I, I, I will say uh, I did uh, listen to a little bit of a clip and the external speakers are very tinny. 
and it does sound really unpleasant. So you know, uh, at a Seven Eleven, yeah, these believe it or not, the okay. speakers at Seven Eleven. Yeah, really man, tiny, but those so. tacos are loco at Seven Eleven. Those are really <laughs> good. Ever eat food from Seven Eleven? So a couple of season announcements. We'll uh, we're getting into the season announcement season, but uh, some early ones: Los Angeles Opera. Uh, Trovatore, mm-hmm. Tannhäuser, mm-hmm. Cenerentola, Don mm-hmm. Giovanni, mm-hmm. and Breaking the Waves. So there it is. Four <laughs> Bang. like chestnut, you know, cannon pieces and Breaking the Waves. I want to see that Tannhäuser so badly. The Stefan Herheim production. We talked about it on the show a couple weeks oh, ago. Well, let's go. Like, if anybody wants to fly me LA, out to you, LA, you're on warning. Um, and I'll say they're also <laughs> doing uh, a concert version of Tamerlano. And uh, a new so- orchestral song cycle with Renee Fleming and Rod Gilfrey mm. based on letters of Georgia Keith called The Brightness of Light. And that's composed Ooh. by Kevin Putz, friend of the show. Oh, yeah. And at Houston, s- sounds almost exactly the same. They're doing Carmen. Yeah. They're doing Verter. Okay. They're doing Parsifal. Ooh. They're doing Cenerentola with my girlfriend, Emily, Emily D'Angelo. And they're doing... Not to be confused with Beverly D'Angelo of uh, National Lampoon's European Vacation. They're also (laughs) doing uh, Sound of Music, but they're doing Breaking the Waves. Look at that. And they're also doing uh, a work by Joel Thompson and Andrea Davis Pinky called The Snowy Day. Oh, I've heard about that. You did? A little bit about that. Not too much. Uh, Not enough to talk about it with any authority. (laughs) And just last month when we were, or in December, I guess, when we were talking about like predictions for the future... Um, and Ashley Hardgrave said, you know, CSO is now becoming the place to hear Italian opera in Chicago. Well, next year, we're going to get no Italian opera conducted by Riccardo Muzzi. What has been announced is a concert of arias with Christmas Stoyanova and Francesco Merli. I appreciate how you called out uh, Ashley when she wasn't here to defend herself. (laughs) Uh, But what a bummer. Like Like a CSO actually has been putting on amazing... Uh, we're going to see Capoli Rusticano this week. Well, I'm going to at least, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but next year we get no Anita Rashvilishvili. We'll get some concert. <laughs> <laughs> Alice Coot so is singing uh, Britain, Elgar, and Tchaikovsky, it looks like, in October. At yeah, but no falabra. No, no, it's not, it's not a falabra. It's not yeah. pretending to be a... So, so here's speaking the, of oh. uh, disappointments, mm-hmm. I do want to mention the Sydney Opera House story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's so... It's so fascinating to me because uh, it is probably the most iconic opera house exterior in the world. Like if you if you need something that's set in Sydney or heck even Australia, if you're if you're like a, doing a film or something, all you need to do is just pan r- your camera right over that opera house. Yeah. It looks like a sailboat. It's gorgeous. Um, but the main architect actually walked out of the project about halfway through, and a lot of people attribute uh, that walkout either. Because uh, because he wasn't overseeing it, or because he ruined it, and no one knew how to fix it, um, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, depending on who you believe. There, the acoustics in the main hall are reportedly just awful. They're really sort of uh, a ringy, sort of like a, a swimming pool, like hmm. is a, is a descriptor I've heard before. I don't know. I've never been. If Sydney, you want to fly me out so I can judge your yeah. acoustics, <laughs> but one hundred fifty million dollars in five years hmm. to yeah. to fix this after so long without it. Yeah, I, something that would be much more easily fixed would not giving the Order of St. George to LCC. Yes. Okay, if if you're running the Zemper Oper in Dresden, 
Okay, so so here, this is really actually quite straightforward. If, if you're not sure if you should do something, you just say it out loud. So if you're like, I know what we should do. We should allow people to have lit cigarettes and pressurized steel tubes at 35,000 feet in the air. <laughs> Obviously, you're going to ban smoking on airplanes, which is what we did. So if you're like, you know what? One of Germany's most important opera houses, one of their most important functions, we're going to give one of the highest honors to this absolutely ruthless authoritarian president not a good idea it's, say it out loud germany say it with me it's absolutely weird because uh, if you were following uh, the past several episodes we've also been covering another unrelated controversy uh another equally weird controversy related to this all press is good press uh, <laughs> i don't know about this i still don't understand that other one by this the was way. this was yeah this was uh um, mr Nertrepko, uh yeah. yusuf uh, uh reportedly uh, 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 saying that he wouldn't work with um, yeah. Mantashian because she was Armenian and it was picked up by the Armenian press. Just a, a weird story, and then it, and then people blamed it on miscommunication. And then she ended up getting a job out of it. So yeah, and then uh, and then and then I saw I saw a report from an Armenian news, newspaper and literally nowhere else this past week um, that said that I've read per- all that correspondence multiple times, and my reaction is the same. Yahoo now. Go on, Weston. <laughs> what were you finished your sentence? Well, uh, the, the, the article I read from an Armenian newspaper through go- layers of Google Translate was that the Semper and Open Ball had actually um, uh, uh, offered her, you know, uh, uh, to, to come back, you know. Yeah, even, she's singing the letter scene. That's well, like that's happening. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, we'll find out after the op- opera ball happens who sang and who didn't, who was killed on stage, et cetera. It is et cetera. absolutely bizarre. I think, I think this year's Semper and Open Ball is just cursed. That's okay. my current A couple theory. of things I want to hit before we end up. Um, Bryn Turvel, we had this running bit on Opera Now years ago when he was supposed to sing Votan for the first time, mm-hmm. and his young son broke his finger and so he had to cancel uh votans because of his son's injury mm-hmm. and now he's canceling flying dutchman's because of some ankle fracture i think that a really nasty angle yeah fracture. i mean i'm sure i i'm not saying he's not injured but it's just convenient that anytime he needs to like debut a big <laughs> wagner role there's some kind of injury in his family and i also want to say uh andrew craig brown Gorgeous, gorgeous man uh who has beautiful hair and i think he's a yogi so he has really great like Eagle pose. Um, <laughs> but uh, he has apparently quit singing, and now he's working in a technical field. Yeah. Uh, and he won a Grammy, or he's part of the Grammy-winning team for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, and he's now in his post-singing career, almost the same way that I'm sure Toby Wright's going to win a Peabody <laughs> for his coverage of Opera Philadelphia O Festival, and he's already out of the podcasting game. So. It's a really it's kind gonna of wait a, a little bit, you know. It's kind of a sweet <laughs> article because you know because he was uh, it was the Grammy was as part of the entire thing. He never got his own like little official Grammy trophy, mm. but like all of the auto workers who worked with him like made their own little Grammy to give him, mm. made out of like auto parts. I, I, I thought it was really sweet. Mm. Uh, all right, we gotta wrap mm. it up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, who's got a good call for me? So something for everybody. Uh, Michael Spires, who's incredible, actually, is singing on the broadcast uh, this Saturday of the Damnation de Faust uh, from the Met. That's the Saturday broadcast. And mm. locally, Anita Rashvelishvili, our hero, is going to be singing <laughs> Santuzza. She's, She's singing Santuzza this weekend uh, here at Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the last time that we'll hear an opera in Italian. At, <laughs> so. Last time ever. And, you heard it here first. And Andrew Brown, he works in Displains, by the way. He's local. I just... That cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So thirsty. Um, 
The uh, Kansas City Football Chiefs did, of course, win the Super Bowl. And, you know, Tobias, you know, I love the man so dearly. I texted him Mm. after they won. I was like, Tobias, what are you thinking? And he just writes back, wow, 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 wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's that kind of uh, insightful commentary that we miss now that Toby's not here anymore. Uh, That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moscow and Somil Songbi. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And the podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For George Cedarquist and our special guest, Royce Vavrick, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera. We're back next week on Monday, February 10th at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news, more hot takes, and and perhaps a little bit of Valentine's Day magic. That's uh, going to be really exciting. I'm already getting worked up all thinking about it. That's next week. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.